Welcome to the Benefits Executive Roundtable, hosted by Dorothy Koshu, President of Advanced Benefit Consulting. Dorothy is a nationally recognized benefits and compliance consultant and group health broker. Here, you'll listen to industry experts break down the latest news and trends in employee benefits, healthcare reform, regulations and compliance, all designed to empower executive decisions. Welcome to the Benefits Executive Roundtable. I'm your host, Dorothy Koshu, President of Advanced Benefit Consulting, and I'm happy to have some very special guests this week from Heinz & Associates, a utilization management and case management firm. We're going to be discussing the negative impacts COVID has had on mental health and behavioral health. Because October is Mental Health Awareness Month, I thought it was appropriate to discuss some of these issues, which frankly aren't talked about enough, and they can definitely have negative impacts on employers when their employees are suffering from these issues, and sometimes they're just afraid to reach out for help. I want to welcome Anna Hansen, Senior Vice President, Client Solutions and Retention, Suzanne Castle, RN, Director of Behavioral Health and Wellness, and Carla Weiner, RN, Director of Medical Case Management Operations. Welcome to all of you. Thank you for inviting us to participate today. The impact COVID has had on our clients and their members has been significant. We appreciate the opportunity to share our knowledge and experience with your listeners. Thank you for having us, Dorothy. This is a a great topic and we're excited to talk about it. Yes, thank you very much. Well, I'm really looking forward to chatting with you guys about this stuff. Let's start with some basics and some background, if you don't mind. Pre-pandemic statistics, which frankly your firm made me aware of, estimated that approximately one in five adults or 20% of the adult population suffered from some sort of mental health issue. When we talk about mental health here, we talk about mental, behavioral, and emotional disorder. From what I understand, this statistic is only what we know because people have seen a provider or they've had some sort of counseling or therapy or have had some sort of medication prescribed. What do you think this percentage might actually be? Is it higher in reality? And do you think there are a lot more people out there that maybe haven't reached out for help? Well, I sure do, uh, Dorothy. Studies show that 50% of people with symptoms just don't seek help. People and families are, they've always been afraid of the stigma of mental illness, but even though the stigma part has improved, it's still there. And there's other factors that we're finding out from studies, uh, not knowing what kind of help to seek, thinking treatment won't make a difference, and sometimes people want to do their own self-help. And of course, affordability is an issue. So all these are issues of healthcare literacy. We recognize that this is a problem, and we help our patients by guiding them to quality and cost-effective resources. Thank you, Suzanne. I really want to talk about the differences by gender or race or urbanization. I have read that women are more likely to have uh, mental health treatment than men. Is this true? And if so, you know, why is that? What do you think, Suzanne? Yes, uh, definitely it's true. Look at, look at your own circle of, of people around you. We recognize there's a difference in thinking between the genders from handling problems to dealing with issues. I uh, can take the old adage of driving in a car with a with a man and a woman or male and female. Remember who will ask for directions and who won't. So isn't isn't that, that the over. truth? Isn't that the truth? It's so true. And then carry that over to asking for help for health care, any kind of health care, but mental health in particular. We know that biology plays a partial role, but definitely a, a difference in the way we deal with stress and trauma. Women are more likely to 
internalize, show, show some sadness or shut down, or as men will more externalize with substances or maybe anger uh, to manage their feelings of depression or anxiety. And then, of course, women are more likely to seek treatment earlier, uh, but this is very um, comparable in physical conditions as well. We've, we have our annual exams every year, and we're in front of the doctor. So when you're in front of the doctor, you're going to mention other things. Men, um, this is really important, um, a point. Men are more likely to die by suicide than women, and it's probably because they don't seek help. Uh, another thing to ad address when you're looking at the differences in gender is the differences in the programs that are available. We're really in a, in a better time right now. There are more and more programs that are specific to gender needs, as well as programs that treat specific ages, uh, sexual identification and gender identification, professions, uh, cultures. So we are in a, a better time of treatment at this point. Well, thank you very much for that. And that really kind of hits home and brings us to reality when you talk about the fact that, you know, one, one uh, gender might be more prone to suicide than the other. I think that makes it a lot more realistic for people to grasp. And I want to thank you for bringing that to our attention. So, you know, we're talking also about the difference in uh, the disparity in, in treatment. And there's a variety of reasons why there might be um, a difference in what people are getting for treatment out there. Um, barriers still exist in receiving physical condition care, and that translates right over to mental health. So you're dealing with racial and cultural discrimination, some less income and work health benefits, lower education advantages, and a higher percentage in the judicial system. There's 50 to 75 percent of youth in the justice system have symptom of a mental health disorder. So if you put all this together, you have a financial burden on the patient and it makes it difficult to care for themselves and for family and just leads to an exacerbation of the symptoms or an onset. And when all this happens, preventative and early intervention healthcare get moved to the side, which continues to perpetuate the circle. We see an issue locating providers that are multicultural or multilingual. And of course, I, a personal story, I, not all cultures accept mental illness as an actual health issue. I remember working with a family whose patriarch had an aggressive opinion on psychiatric treatment. It was difficult to get him on board, and we really had to get creative, so we respected his views, yet ensured that patient had safe and appropriate care. Well, thank you, Suzanne. Uh, let's talk about social and economic neglect of mental health care. Studies have stated that there is a disproportionate focus on severe versus mild to moderate mental health. I would imagine that mild to moderate is the largest population of mental health needs, yet this is the area that is most neglected. Is that correct? And if so, why is that? Yes, we definitely see more severe cases. Uh, they require a higher level of care. Um, you're going to see those because it's evident. If you're seeing someone that is overdosing or someone with hallucinations, it's going to be quite clear that they have a mental illness. Uh, the symptoms that they're having cause disruption in the life or, or other people's lives. 
And we know early intervention is the key, but often people will put off that care, just like we discussed earlier. And when you have somebody with mild to moderate conditions, you don't often see that suffering like you would when somebody is very evidently going through a mental health crisis. People don't go to the doctor, and so they can't discuss this during COVID. We've seen that. People put off care, and they're not able to discuss their symptoms. And before long, these mild and moderate turn to severe conditions, disabling and, and impacting their, their life. So every time they delay their care, whether it be health, um, physical health or whether it be mental health, you're going to see it become an impact requiring acute care and higher levels of care. I read in a Kaiser Family Foundation report from July 2020 that many adults are reporting specific negative impacts on their mental health and well-being, such as difficulty sleeping or eating or alcohol and substance abuse, which Suzanne mentioned just a moment ago, and worsening chronic conditions due to their worrying about the coronavirus and how it affects our lives. COVID-19 isn't over. We'd like to think it is, but it isn't over. And although things are in many ways better now, you know, like perhaps these types of stress and anxiety and what caused that stress and anxiety, you know, what kind of impact can these stresses have on someone's outcome, such as perhaps isolation or even job loss? Oh, absolutely. Fear, fear from attending appointments or going places, that's going to impact. Isolation makes them feel alone and perpetuates those depressive feelings. And, and remember, the non-essential employees were jobless during the lockdowns, causing financial hardship. Um, Carla can expound on this a little. Um, yeah, thanks, Suzanne. Employment concerns are definitely in the forefront of most people's minds during the pandemic. Uh, fear of losing their job, fear of going to work and contracting the virus, anxiety over contracting the virus at work and bringing it home to family members and having them get it. These worries often have an impact on chronic illnesses because they may have changes in their diet and nutrition. You know, you don't always find time to eat when you're worried about somebody else. And as Suzanne said, they may miss appointments and become much more socially isolated. Uh, physicians have become skilled at virtual office visits, which has made a significant improvement. And all of our case managers in all the specialties are fully trained on behavioral health assessments, and they look for indications that may require additional help. We have always seen behavioral health needs as part of a catastrophic illness. We find patients that are overwhelmed, they're depressed, they're anxious. Uh, so we've seen anxiety and depression even before COVID. And with COVID, we're now seeing more of a delay in patients going to the doctor. They're ignoring their symptoms. And this may lead to a delayed diagnosis, and that in turn will lead to more stress, anxiety, and depression. So this population is overwhelmed from every angle. Our specialty and general case managers all recognize the need to address these symptoms early on, and they collaborate very well with our behavioral health team to ensure that they are getting the best care possible well, let's talk a little bit more about anxiety and depression. You both, Suzanne and Carla, both mentioned this, but let's let's get into a little bit more detail here. What populations are at most risk for experiencing negative mental health or substance abuse consequences due to the pandemic? 
Well, let's let's go back to looking at the circle of people around you and um, looking at how it would impact every every type of person. Start with starting with the elderly. They're isolated from family during all this. And what if they are in the hospital? What if they have COVID? What if they have another illness? They're not getting that support from their loved ones. And then also the fear of being at a higher risk to develop COVID-19. And then, of course, those with chronic mental illness that are not getting the care that they need and their condition is getting worse and their symptoms are escalating. And then go back to also the young people. They need that socialization and the peer support and they weren't getting that for an extended period of time. And that can really cause some issues in that age group. There's also, of course, we talked about before, people whose employment was impacted. And then a handful of other things that could go on. Um, People who already have low social support. And so this isolation period that we had gone through didn't make it any better for them. Uh, There's also people with difficulty with downtime. You know who they are, the people that are type A personalities, and they really struggle. And there was a time where they couldn't go do a lot of the things they wanted to do or get done. And And it's an extended downtime that we all went through. And, of course, you know, if you think about it, everyone probably knows someone that passed away during this time, and it could have been another illness or could have been COVID. And the family doesn't have that support, that hug, that handshake, the touch of another person is so valuable. We've seen it studies after studies that how important that is to physically touch someone. Yeah, that's all very important. Thank you, Suzanne. And I personally, I I recall during COVID, obviously, there were a lot of serious illness and there was a lot of, unfortunately, death. And and I do have, have some personal experience with that, you know, people needing those hugs, people wanting so desperately, you know, for people to be there to share in their grief and not having that available, limiting funerals to 10 people, if at all, and, and that sort of thing. A close friend of mine passed away, um, you know, the first couple of months of COVID and, um, you know, it was, it was difficult for all of us because none of us could get together and none of us could remember him. And um, that, that was... That was just, that's a devastating, that's a devastating time. So thank you for bringing that up and for, you know, making us all aware that we need to do more of that when we can safely, of course, uh, because that is, that is really important. Let's talk about the economy and how the pandemic may have led to or may in the future lead to higher rates of anxiety, depression, distress, low self-esteem, et cetera, and how those may have lost their jobs or, you know, how lower incomes that may be at higher risk for substance abuse or suicide. What are your thoughts on this and what have you seen? And most importantly, how can these people be helped more effectively? Well, many of us know someone who lost their job or their business during the pandemic the perfect storm occurs. You have an inability to financially care for yourself or your family, might be grieving from the loss of that job or that business, causes disruption from the life they planned for themselves and their family, and a change to lifestyle. So it's very important to find them help and opportunity to move forward with their life. And it will depend on the person and what they value. So besides health care to address any mental health issues, You might need financial advising, educational opportunities, mentoring. Right, Carla? Yeah, definitely. 
And additionally, in terms of the economy, it has caused several economic crises in numerous aspects of healthcare. Um, supply chains in some areas have been interrupted in obtaining disposable goods and dressing supplies, certain medical equipment. And there are frontline healthcare workers that have become so stressed because of the pandemic, they're leaving their positions. They just don't want to face it every day. In some areas of the country, certain everyday necessities might be in short supply, like paper goods, and that in turn can lead to people hoarding them. And when people can't get what they need, that will also increase their anxiety. In some cases, people are seeing their favorite restaurant clothes and they can't have their coffee clutch. And for a lot of populations, that was a vitally important part of their feelings of well-being. So all of this leads to increased anxiety and depression. And here we are very strong patient advocates and we have fully engaged relationships with our patients. We're constantly researching and finding additional resources to share with each other and ultimately with our patients to help them with their healthcare needs, financial needs, educational needs, mental health needs, um, and any other needs that we can identify. Well, thank you both for that information. And I do recall during the early parts of the pandemic when there were a lot of paper goods shortages, I remember, you know, searching many, many stores for toilet paper. I wasn't alone. Many of us were doing that. And those basic necessities, you know, that we have and, and Clorox wipes and all those types of things. I remember getting up at five in the morning. I usually get up at five in the morning anyway, but I usually get up and work out. I remember targeting there was one Target store that supposedly still had a supply of toilet paper and they were going to be opening it up at 8 o'clock the next morning. And I was desperately short on toilet paper. So I got up at 5 and instead of doing my workout, I got up, got my workout clothes on, drove to Target and sat outside of that store. And I wasn't alone, by the way, um, for hours waiting for it to open just to run inside and grab what remaining toilet paper was there for ourselves. Of course, there were limits on it and so forth. But... I was there because I needed it, but there were th people there that I grabbed one packet of toilet paper. There were, and they had I think a limit of two or three or whatever it was at the time, but there were people fighting with people in line trying to grab theirs, and they were so desperate. Um, it was it was really actually a scary thing, you know, uh, at 8, 8.02 in the morning uh, after waiting outside in the cold. It was pretty cold, actually, even here in Southern California, uh, just trying to get that. So just witnessing something like that, and you're right, the things like not being able to go to the Starbucks and getting their morning coffee and having their morning routine. Yeah, that's, that's it's it's really... It, it kind of brings it all home. You know what I mean? This is real. This is stuff that really happened. And we kind of forgot about it because it happened so – it's been a year now since this all happened. And we kind of forget. But that was I, – I saw, I witnessed firsthand what it – you know, how it affected people just in the grocery store line. So you're right. I mean, there are a lot of more serious things going on for sure. But thank you for uh, bringing that information up. I think that's really important for people to kind of look back and reflect on and say, yeah, this stuff was very real to us, uh, especially, you know, any of those types of short. But now, if you're comparing that to what you're talking about, if they need medical supplies, if they need, you know, medical equipment, if they need certain things that they can't get, um, the emergency room's not having the right stock of equipment, the hospitals and so forth. And yeah, that's that's pretty scary stuff. And it, it really hits home with those people that were involved and right in the middle of that stuff during those shortages and, and continue to be so. I mean, we're even worried now. People are starting to freak out now about not being able to get stuff in time for Christmas, you know, for their gifts for their kids and so forth uh, and starting to panic and order things now instead of waiting a month or two. So yeah, I mean, this definitely affects, it's definitely affected all of us for sure. Um, 
during the pandemic, parents were dealing not only with work at home, but also simultaneously, you know, dealing with their kids, learning from home on Zoom. And suddenly, you know, as an employee, they were less productive because they had to split their hours with uh, work life and being a homeschool teacher, which is something that most people weren't prepared for. What have you seen so far as stress and anxiety related to that sort of thing? Well, we have to remember that we first acknowledged this pandemic and about 19 months ago. That's a long time. So, you know, you, it, it's an extended period of time that people have been doing all these things that we've been talking about. People who are used to handling episodic stress, like their car broke down or grocery order didn't go through or something like that, are now finding themselves in a chronic state of stress. And they're trying to manage these home issues and employment and poor self-care because, you know, we all know, we talk about our poor self-care when we were all at home, um, the fears of being infected. It's all very wearing, and it increases the risk for developing anxiety and depression as well as substance abuse. Um, wouldn't you agree, Carla? Yeah, I definitely agree with that. And maintaining a work-life balance is important to all of us. And the pandemic has disrupted it for most of us in one way or another. When we have patients that are fearful of losing their benefits because they've lost their job or their hours have been cut to the point where they no longer qualify to be on their employer's group health plan, they are desperate for some help. So we want to get them some assistance. And, you know, we try and steer them towards an employee assistance program if they have access to one, because they provide a lot of support and counseling and can help people through at least the initial phases of some of this. We work very closely with our members to make sure they know how to access a multitude of resources to assist them with healthcare, living expenses, such as food and utilities, access to medications. I mean, when finances are impacted, many people will stop taking their medications as prescribed, and so then they're no longer therapeutic. Then we're looking at the potential for exacerbation of symptoms or of the disease process. So we want to do everything we can to stop that. We also encourage support groups. There are many out there for everything from condition-specific to the homeschooling support for those parents that never thought they'd be homeschooling their kids. Uh, and these are virtual and in-person. And that includes support groups for adolescents and young adults. This population desperately needs to have socialization and peer support. We can't control the pandemic or the life choices of those around us, but we can provide education to people on the most effective ways to mitigate their risks and to carry on the best that they can. Yes, well said. Well, the Kaiser Foundation uh, report also discussed young adults and how the pandemic affected them with anxiety, depression, sleep disruptions, and the thoughts of suicide increasing. Can you talk a little bit about this younger population and how they can be helped? Uh, well, this one hits home for me, Dorothy. I have children in this age group. Uh, this population is already under a great deal of pressure and stress. They're adults but not yet financially and emotionally equipped to be on their own. Uh, they might be in school, they might be starting low-paying jobs, or just unsure about what they want their life to look like. I've always told my kids, this is the hardest age of your life. 
so here they are going through all these things and smack in the middle of this time of their life is a pandemic. It's socially isolating them during probably the most social time of their lives. Um, it's caused many of them to be unemployed. It's interrupted their school or training programs and basically, in a nutshell, stopped them from moving forward from uh, in their lives. We have to make sure help is available to them, but the way they ingest it. So online, virtual help is good for them. Uh, through their school services, employment programs that are centered on young adults, uh, life and career coaching, we have to give them the support that meets them where they are in their life journey. Yeah, absolutely, for sure. Um, a lot of people at all ages and all populations put off mental health care and medical care, behavioral health care, and everything else during the pandemic, as both of you have discussed uh, earlier on. Uh, why is it so important to be sure people are reaching out and seeking treatment? I think we all know that, but maybe you can kind of hone in on this for us a little bit. If they're still afraid to go out to the doctor's office or the therapist's office, uh, and again, you mentioned this as well earlier, but I want to hit on it again, can telehealth help and how does that help? How successful has telehealth been in mental health and behavioral health issues and can they still have case managers and one-on-one assistance even through something like a pandemic? We've been fortunate to be able to access uh, telehealth as an option for the majority of our patients. Uh, we know that telemedicine is supported and is comparable to in-person services. It's a great answer to rural health care issues as well as those people that are fearful to leave the residence. And it's also a little less expensive. Um, can they still have case managers, one-on-one assistance? Uh, we've seen both telehealth and in-person help during the pandemic. Um, I think you'll, you'll see after better knowledge of how COVID spreads, Programs, in particular behavioral health programs, have taken intense precautions to continue this treatment for those that really needed it. And that would include partial hospitalization programs, intensive outpatient treatment, uh, various groups, so that, you know, they use the CDC recommended um, guidance of wearing masks, socially distancing, using cleaning protocols. I'm sure Carla's seen this on the medical side as well. Yes, we have, definitely. From the medical side, we have seen more and more doctors incorporating virtual visits and telehealth into their daily schedule of patients. They will actually reserve spots in their day for telehealth visits. And many specialists, oncologists, rheumatologists, endocrinologists, uh, a lot of them are doing telehealth visits to decrease potential exposure in their immunocompromised patients when all they need is an office visit and they're not getting any treatment. A family member of mine has regular appointments with her oncologist via virtual or telehealth to decrease exposure in the office and also walking through the halls of the medical center and parking lots because you don't know when you're walking through the hallways who's who or, you know, have they been exposed? Have they been vaccinated? So this, in turn, alleviates some of the fear and anxiety that patients have. Most of the medical centers and doctor's office buildings have increased screening as you enter, temperature checks, handing out masks. Even if you have one, they make you take one anyway. Um, hand sanitizers everywhere. And I haven't seen a decrease in this, even with the decreasing mandates that we've seen, at least in our cities. 
And these simple measures increase the overall feelings of safety for the public, and this is so important right now. Medical staff are doing what they can to also recognize how the pandemic has changed the way people are doing a lot of these things these days in order to alleviate their fears of exposure, like virtual visits, like grocery deliveries, and just doing a lot of their shopping online. Yes, absolutely. So I guess the, the, the point here is that if you haven't made an appointment and you've been putting it off, it's time to get on the phone or time to go online and make that appointment. If, it's, if you don't feel comfortable doing it in person, then you can schedule a telehealth visit. I think that's what you're both pretty much saying, correct? Absolutely. Make that contact. Get in front of your doctor, either virtually or in person. Yes, for sure. Well, behavioral health disorders have literally cost trillions in lost productivity, absenteeism, and treatment. This has put a huge burden on relationships, on communities, and society in general. Can you tell us the most common types of behavioral health disorders and how these disorders have affected each of these in relation to relationships, communities, and societies in general? Yes. Uh, let's look at a handful of diagnosis uh, Take, for instance, um, major depressive disorder. Uh, a lot of people that suffer that have low energy. Uh, they, they may have trouble getting out of bed, showing up for their job. They may be exhausting their loved ones but by their lack of energy and, and lack of oomph, for lack of a better word there. Um, that really affects uh, relationships. And look at anxiety disorders. Uh, it, it's very difficult, and, and boy, what a better time to study this type of, of issue uh, because we know that we're seeing extreme amount of fear and people with anxiety disorders are going through an intense fear and it can paralyze people where they're not communicating, they're not doing what they need to do to take care of themselves and that affects their whole family. Uh, another diagnosis you might want to look at is bipolar uh, disorder with uh, mania symptoms. That might make them take that fear into account, uh, like Carla had talked about, and excessively start buying things. Um, or they may be going the other way and dealing with depression symptoms. People with schizophrenia have difficulty expressing their emotions and making social connections anyway. So you put them in a pandemic situation, and that's just going to exacerbate all of those issues for them. So that's relationships. But look at the communities in general. Look at all the programs that got shut down during this, all the people that had support systems out there in their communities. If, if it was nothing else, it was, it was an event to go to they didn't have. And that can make things go in a bad direction for people mentally. And then lastly, you know, go to the bigger realm of, of our existence here in society in general. So for many mental illness, when a condition is unmanaged or exacerbated, society is often left with the consequences of that, you know, such as homelessness or funding issues or legal issues. Yeah, that's, that's, that's a lot. Well, thank you for providing us with so much helpful information on these issues. Uh, Heinz and Associates, of course, has a comprehensive behavioral health program and dedicated team of seasoned specialists like yourselves. And you have decades of experience and success with this. Can you walk us through the types of programs that you offer and what's available in general to help those who need it? Anna, how about you? We haven't heard from you in a while. 
Heinz offers a full spectrum of care management services. We actually have over 30 years of experience. These include UREC accredited UM and case management. In addition, we offer a comprehensive chronic condition disease management and wellness program. Our utilization management program ensures care is medically necessary. Our concurrent review process helps review for discharge or lower level of care opportunities. This is especially important with behavioral health stays and long COVID stays. Our UM program is one of the many ways we locate members that can benefit from case management. In case management, the member is assigned an experienced registered nurse with expertise in the member's condition management. As we see with behavioral health conditions, having nurses coordinate care ensures the member is getting the right care at the right place and time while assisting the plan to get the right cost of care. Our specialty case management programs help members diagnose with other catastrophic conditions such as cancer. We are seeing members needing more care coordination as they may have put off care due to COVID concerns. Heinz services include chronic condition disease management and wellness. Identifying members for care is essential to help reduce risk factors for COVID and behavioral health comorbidities. Through our COVID education program, we help members better handle and reduce these risk factors. Our biggest takeaway is our experienced, many with over 10 years, nurses that are here to help our client members and their health plans with managing care costs and preventing future complications. What can employers uh, do to help their employees to get through times like COVID? Many want help, but just don't know where to start. Well, there are many publications that are out there put out by various um, HR organizations that have recommendations for employers, but they all agree on the big points. Employers should strongly encourage the use of an employee assistance program if they have it available. As I said earlier, there are many support and counseling programs available through EAPs that are designed to help people make it through these tough times. Uh, during any time of uncertainty, communication from leaders is vitally important. Leaders need to promote positivity and display a calm appearance and strength of character. If a leader is calm, cool, and collected, the employees feel reassured. Employees will follow a solid leader. You want to incorporate team building activities, and it could be virtual, such as contests or health challenges. Uh, here, we do a getting to know you email with all of our new people. Um, we send them an email and they answer questions about them. So we get to know them personally, even if we're not able to meet them face to face. It shows how much we care about our employees and, and makes them feel like one of the group. So you want to bring some of that personal into the workplace and make sure employees know how much they're appreciated. Also, you want to encourage employees to talk about what's on their mind. What suggestions do they have for ways to improve productivity, morale, and overall feelings of well-being? They're the ones that are right there in the trenches doing the work. They know what needs to be done to make it better. Um, and they appreciate being asked what their opinions are. Also, be flexible with scheduling whenever able. Allow time off for employees to go for their vaccinations 
and also encourages the use of time off. So many people during this pandemic have eliminated vacations from their life. So even if you do a staycation and stay home and do all those little projects that you put off because you're going to work, you know, that's, that's a really good time to just get some time away from your job. And overall, just be supportive and be kind. This is a trying time for all of us, but we're all in this together. Very well said. Thank you. You guys also have a COVID education program as well. Can you tell us a bit about that? I mean, I know there's a ton of information out there, but, you know, probably even more misinformation. You're absolutely right, Dorothy. We work very diligently to ensure that all of our case managers and disease managers are kept up to date with the current mitigation recommendations, the CDC guidelines for treatment, uh, the vaccination recommendations. And our nurses include patient education on a daily basis with all of the cases that they're working. They are constantly educating their patients on how to mitigate their risks and keep themselves safe while they're still able to obtain the treatment that they need. We always try to steer patients to best practice websites and steer them away from social media. Social media is where you see a lot of the misinformation coming. So we want people to be able to make the best informed decisions for themselves with the best possible information available. Uh, for more specifics, though, on our the newest aspects of our COVID education program, I'm going to let Suzanne explain. Thank you, Carla. Uh, we definitely recognize the need for accurate and unbiased information to reach our most vulnerable in our society, as well as providing similar support to the entire community we serve. So for our current clients who wish to participate in this COVID education program, we're opening up our wellness portal and we're enabling them free access to the library of resources and wellness courses within it. Uh, we hope that this assists uh, any interested members in maintaining their well-being and even improving their overall health through this expansive education program uh, will focus on preemptively assisting the higher risk, severe COVID-19 individuals as we work within this program. So while our live active wellness coaching is not part of the COVID-19 education program, we do believe this will be beneficial to all who participate. Well, thank you. Do you think it's important that employers consider things like risk strategies and perhaps overall employee wellness during times like a pandemic? Absolutely. Everyone needs to feel that they're in a safe environment, whether they're at home or at work. So risk mitigation strategies are extremely important and they should be followed. And everyone needs to feel comfortable in reminding someone that they work with uh, about wearing masks, about keeping a safe distance, and the importance of vaccinations. Employee wellness, physical and mental, is extremely important for happy, productive employees. Yes, absolutely right about that. Now, I want to talk about something really serious, uh, but I think it's something that we need to talk about since it is Mental Health Awareness Month. There are suicide prevention hotlines available whether someone you know has a health plan or not. So many people die of suicide and no one ever really knew that there was anything wrong. What types of resources are out there for anyone who needs it, even if they don't have health insurance? 
Well, I'm really glad you're highlighting this, Dorothy. Uh, as usual, there's the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline, and that's available 24-7. And that you can call in at um, English and Spanish speaking, and the number is 800-273-8255. Besides that, you have NAMI, National Alliance on Mental Illness, and it's an advocacy group. They have a lot of education. They do a lot to um, push forward on um, the needs of the mental, uh, mentally ill in our society. And then there's SAMHSA, the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration. This is a great website. They have a ton of education. You can download their pamphlets, their books. You can order things. It's all free. And they also have a treatment locator on that. And then if you look at each state you live in, each one has a Department of Mental Health. And so if you go online, you might be able to find that state information and anything that's available in your particular area. But I think it's important to say if you know someone that's thinking of harming themselves or harming someone else, you need to get them to the nearest emergency department. Uh, once there, they'll be assessed and recommendations for treatment will be made. But then also dealing with the people that feel safe and maybe having symptoms, encourage them to talk to their primary care doctor about what would be the best plan of care for them. Or they can call a behavioral health agency to get an assessment and set up services. And of course, you know, with all the rest, we need to discuss substance abuse services. There's a lot of agencies that will do an intake assessment and then help you plan the best services for yourself. Thank you very much for that. So as we said many times, it's October, it's Mental Health Awareness Month. What do you think is the most important, impactful message that you, know, that you guys can share with our listeners this month? I really think the most important thing to tell people is there's help, it's available, and it's okay to ask for help. We need to get away from the thought of mental illness being a weakness. So many people are afraid to ask for help because they feel like they're weak, and that is not true. Uh, in fact, there's a quote I like, and it ends in this way. A diagnosis does not determine who you are or what you can do. Thank you very much for that. And thanks so much for all this valuable information. If someone out there wants to reach out to Heinz & Associates to find out more about your programs, how can they reach you? Dorothy, the best way they can reach us is to actually call us if they'd like. Our number would be 800 735 one two zero zero or by our website at heinzassoc.com or email to sales at heinzassoc.com h-i-n-e-s associ a-s-s-o-c dot com the email would be sales at heinzassoc.com and they are also welcome to personally call out to me Anna Hansen at 800 800- Seven three five one two zero zero extension three seven zero two. Thank you, Anna. And thanks to all of you and everyone out there listening. Please stay safe, stay healthy, and remember, if you need help with any of these issues, please reach out to somebody. If you see someone who doesn't seem quite right, remember they may not be. So please see if you can help steer them to someone who can help them. Thanks again to Anna, Susanna, and Carla. We really appreciate your sharing all of this valuable information during this very important month. To everyone out there, please be healthy. Thank you for including us in today's call. 
Heinz services are customized to our clients. Our services can include directional care, RBP coordination, negotiations, and care management. We ensure our clients' needs are addressed throughout each step of the journey. Through directional care, patients start at the right place and time for the right care to move health care forward at the appropriate cost. Thank you again, Dorothy, for including us and highlighting this important topic. Thank you, guys. Yeah, thank you for having us, Dorothy. This has been a wonderful experience for us. Thank you, Dorothy. It's so important to get this information out there, and I really appreciate your focusing on mental health during this um, special month uh, for those of us that um, take care of this clientele. So I appreciate it. Thank you again. Oh, you're very much welcome. Thank you, and thanks to everyone. Thanks for listening. Stay tuned for compliance tips, cost containment ideas, new trends, and decision-making tools. This podcast is produced by Advanced Benefit Consulting, Anaheim, California. All views expressed are those of the host or interviewees and not necessarily those of Advanced Benefit Consulting. Information contained herein should not be construed as legal advice. We always recommend that you consult with your legal counsel as situations do vary. Ms. Koshu can be reached at 714-693-9754, extension 3. Toll free at 866-658-3835. Or visit our website at advancedbenefitconsulting.com.